بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين حمدا كثيرا طيبا مباركا فيك ما يحب ربنا ويرضى والصلاة والسلام الأتمان الأكملان المتلازمان على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما يا أرحم الراحمين يا رب العالمين وبعد الحمد لله This is lesson 59 and we are in the middle of our discussion on the Battle of Badr. And this is a very critical and pivotal point in the seerah of the Prophet wasallam, And that's why we said we're probably going to dedicate three to four sessions just on Badr. There's so many things in the story that we cannot do injustice to the Battle of Badr by putting everything into a single class. It, it's not fair. So we talked about certain issues regarding the Ghazawat and the Saraya and the nature of those caravan raids and the background of that and also the, the moral status of that and our position towards these things. So we're now approaching the great battle of Badr. A couple of times in the previous classes, we talked about some of those individual Ghazawat and those Saraya that were taking place and how they were pursuing caravans always to find them having passed on a day or two before. They're missing this one, missing that one. And we talk about these because it's their pursuit of the caravans that lead to Badr. So there's a direct causal line we can draw between those early Saraya and Ghazawat in which they were quote-unquote unsuccessful and the Battle of Badr itself. So, to be clear, there are two battles of Badr. There are two. There is Badr al-Sughra and Badr al-Kubra, the greater and the lesser battles of Badr. The Sughra, or the lesser or minor Badr, is also called Badr al-Ula, Badr the first, the first battle of Badr. And it's also called Ghazwatu Safawan. Ghazwatu Safawan. So go back, we'll go back to that story because we talked about it. About 10 days after the Prophet ﷺ returned from one of the Ghazawat, returned to Medina, there was a person named Kurz ibn Jabir al Fihri who had come into the area and stole some of the livestock belonging to Muslims in Medina. Livestock grazing, grazing on the outskirts. And this is about three miles outside of Medina. He stole the livestock and he and a small group of his friends killed the herders looking after the livestock. When news of this reached the Prophet wasallam, three miles into Medina itself, he went out with 70 of his companions looking for this man and in that ghazwa it was with the liwa the battle flag carried by Sayyiduna Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu and they went out and they were looking for course until they reached this valley called the valley of Safawan and that valley of Safawan is close to Badr you know you're trying to imagine this and 
many of you have been to Medina and you see the city and you know that Badr isn't that far away in terms of a, a car drive, but it's about 160 miles. So it's still, it's gonna take a while to get there. So they're going for days to get to this area. So they're in the proximate area of Badr when they try to go deal with this individual named Kurz. They get to the area, but they had missed him. And so they returned to Medina. That was a Ghazwa called Ghazwa of Badr, Al-Ula or Sughra, and there, there wasn't combat, they didn't, they didn't see him. So, this is not a battle as such, but it was an attempt to ambush Kurz and to get the, the livestock back. So although they were quote-unquote unsuccessful in catching Kurz and getting the livestock back, it wasn't really an unsuccessful operation because this outcome led the Prophet ﷺ to start sending out scouts and spies to different regions to see what's going on with the caravans and to intercept any movement from the enemy. So this quote-unquote unsuccessful attempt to find Kurz and get the livestock back uh, led to the Prophet ﷺ deciding to send out scouts proactively to look for different caravans, going through different routes, and also to see what's going on. And the Prophet ﷺ started sending care, uh, scouts not just to the areas going north. He was sending scouts to the areas, the trade caravans going south to the Yemen. That's interesting because, you know, think about Quraysh, where they are positioned. They're in Mecca, Medina is to the north. In their minds, if the Muslims are going to raid the caravans, they're going to raid them while they're going north to Sham. It didn't even occur to them that there would be Muslims in the south looking out for the caravans to possibly raid them going south to the Yemen. Why would they go all the way to Medina, around Mecca and further south, just to scout out those routes and intercept them? It, they, didn't see, they wouldn't see that coming. But the Prophet is sending out scouts even as far as the areas south of Mecca towards the Yemen. Now we also talked about another battle, and this is linked to Badr itself. And that is the Ghazwa of Ushayra. Intelligence reports were brought to the Prophet ﷺ stating that the bulk of Quraysh's wealth was tied up in investments going into this caravan heading north to Sham. And this is what leads to this Ghazwa. So they know that there's this large caravan headed by Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan is leading this caravan and it said that almost everyone of Mecca had put some investments and goods into that caravan and interestingly of those who didn't invest they didn't show up for Badr either because their money wasn't tied in with that so he took all of this all the money the investments the, the, the properties the things that he's going to sell north Intelligence reached the Prophet ﷺ that this caravan is going north. He uh, went out to intercept it, but as we know, the caravan had passed a few days before they arrived. So they get to this place, Rushaira. They realize the caravan had passed a few days before they arrived, but this is going to lead to the Battle of Badr. 
that caravan route goes north, it does its trade, it has to come back. And as it's coming back, we get to Badr, right? So this Ghazwa to Ushayra is called a Ghazwa, even though there wasn't combat, because the Prophet ﷺ was there. It was an expedition. And though there was no combat, it was the immediate precursor to Ghazwa to Badr. It's the precursor to that battle because it's the same caravan on its way back that they end up getting. So what led to Badr itself? We try to trace the steps bit by bit until we get to the actual confrontation on the battle lines. So as we said a few moments ago, when you look at the Ghazawat and the Saraya that are occurring now, after Allah gave permission, you see this causal line you can draw between the previous attempts to raid the caravans and the Battle of Badr. But what was the, the event that triggered the actual Battle of Badr? The immediate cause, if you, just, if you don't look at the caravans itself, the immediate cause was the killing of Amr al-Hadrami. Remember we talked about him last week in that Sariya, that expedition called Sariya al-Nakhla that was led by Abdullah bin Jahsh when the Prophet sallallahu sent him with a small group with a letter and said open the letter only two days after you've traveled and then people had the choice to go back or to go with him. Well we know that whole story when they started to fight and Amr al-Hadrami was killed and that was the immediate cause. So you, you can say there's two immediate causes here, right? The killing of Amr al-Hadrami and then of course the return of the caravan of Abu Sufyan from the north. So it was those two things that were effectively the drivers leading to the Battle of Badr. So the caravan they're going to be capturing on Badr is the caravan they missed during the Ghazwa of Ushayra. What's in this caravan? Abu Sufyan, it is said, was leading this caravan and it had a thousand camels. And it is said that it had over 50,000 dinars among the wealth. And that every single person of Quraysh minus 40 or so people had invested some of their money into this caravan. There's a narration in the tabaqat of Imam Ibn Sa'd which mentions that the Prophet ﷺ sent out two people to act as scouts, as spies, to basically do reconnaissance on the caravan of Abu Sufyan on its return, to figure out where it is on its return going south, so they could report that information back to the Prophet ﷺ, so he could then mobilize some of the Muslims to intercept that caravan, on the way back. They miss it the first time, they didn't want to miss it on the way back. So he sent two people from the Sahaba to do that operation of reconnaissance, scouting, and looking out for this caravan. That was Talha ibn Ubaidillah anhu, and Sa'id ibn Zaid. They were the two scouts. So they go north on, on their own, a two-man team going out. They go north until they reach this spring belonging to the tribe known as Banu Nabhan of Tai. And when they got there, they were received very warmly by the tribesmen. And the tribesmen sheltered them, basically fed them and looked after them and made sure that they didn't get discovered. 
that's really interesting. They kind of kept them hidden away from prying eyes. And after sheltering with them, they would go day and night on foot tracking the caravan. Have any of you ever tracked a caravan? I haven't, but having lived in a desert environment in Mauritania and West Africa, and Yemen too, I, I have a sense of what that might look like. It's kind of like trailing a car, you know? You know the movies where you know, you're, I think we're being followed. It's not how it works in real life. Like people who actually want to follow a car won't just drive behind the car or pull off of the road or pull off from the sidewalk as soon as you start driving and they see you and they're right behind you. They'll have multiple people playing leapfrog, you know, around a car as it's driving. They'll have multiple people letting them know. So the, the person driving would never expect they're being followed because they don't see a pattern. So if you're following a caravan, you can't exactly leapfrog. But if you're two men, you're traveling very light. You could travel here and there, just camp on a certain point and just keep an eye out at miles, you know, depending on where you are. So they're doing this as a two-man operation. So they were sheltered and they're going on foot, tracking this caravan, and they found it. They found this caravan finally, and it was along the shoreline to the Red Sea. And they went back to tell the Prophet ﷺ where the caravan's located and the route it's taking going south. So they have solid intelligence. They're ready to go report back. But we find out that there were other people in the mix. It appears that some of the munafiqeen in Medina got wind of Talha and Sa'id bin Zayd going out. And they sent out letters to some writers to go out there and find Abu Sufyan and let him know that he's being tracked. So now Abu Sufyan knows something's up. He knows something's up. Talha and Sa'id, they go back to tell the Prophet ﷺ where the caravan is located and on what route it's going. They get back to Medina and the Prophet ﷺ already left. Why isn't he waiting for these two scouts to give him the intelligence? Well, we're going to see why. So the Prophet ﷺ leaves Medina even before Talha and Sa'id get back with their intelligence. The narrations say that the Prophet ﷺ spoke to the Ansar and the Muhajirun, and it seems like it was a discreet speech given to them. And this is before the scouts return, and he tells them about going on an on a expedition of sorts without giving them much detail. So some people responded and other people did not. But there was no blame on anyone for not going on this trip for a couple of reasons. Reason number one, they didn't think that this was going to lead to any battle. It just appeared from its very general description that it was an exploratory trip, an expedition of sorts. There was no description of direct combat. They weren't told they're going to face uh, direct combat. So they didn't feel that the Prophet ﷺ is going to face battle. Therefore, there's no risk to him. If they felt there was a genuine risk, you think they would have stayed back? No, they would have gone. They didn't feel there was a risk to the Prophet ﷺ. Likewise, they knew that going out 
was not wajib. It was not wajib, it was not obligatory on them. So some people stayed behind and others went out. And then there are others, a third group, who were excused, who would have gone out, but they didn't because of various excuses. And the Prophet ﷺ says that they receive the reward for as if they participated in Badr, and they also receive the ghanima, their share of the ghanima, even though they weren't there. So we're trying to piece together this narrative from the time he leaves, وسلم, from Medina to one mile out of Medina to each little camp area until finally we get to the final culmination in the great battle. So the Prophet وسلم, he leaves Medina before the scouts Talha and Sa'id return. He leaves Medina on a Saturday, the 12th of Ramadan. And Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum anhu was appointed as the Imam to lead the prayers in his absence. How many Muslims went out for the Battle of Badr? Right. There's 313 mentioned and there's 314, give or take. Right? There's famously 313. But when you go to the more detailed books, you're going to find some discrepancies. Even the Sahaba themselves, Al-Bara bin Azif, he says uh, 300 plus. He doesn't put a definite number beyond 300. So in most of the Sira works, they say 313. Some say 314. Uh, those who say 314, they say 83 of them were from the Muhajirun. And 61 of them were from the Aus of the Ansar. And 170 were from the Khazraj of the Ansar. You see how this battle or, or this trip is different from all the previous ones? All the previous ones we, we saw were just Muhajirun going out on their own or going Muhajirun going with the Prophet who is Sayyidul Muhajirin. So he's also Muhajir in that respect. But no Ansar were going out. This is the first trip, now ambiguous trip slash expedition that also involves Muhajirun and Ansar. So you see that there's 170 Khazraj and 61 Aus. Why such a discrepancy? The reason the ulama say is because at that time, not everyone in Medina was yet a Muslim. And among the Muslims, the natives of Medina, at that time, there were more Khazraji Muslims than Aus. A quick review question. Which one of them were the merchants and business people? The Aus or the Khazraj? The Aus. The Khazraj were the farmers, the agricultural workers. And they're also uh, less financially well off. So you see that even reflected in, like, that's, that tends to be a norm in history. Like those who become Muslim first, right? So, going to Sahih al-Bukhari, Al-Bara ibn Azib radiallahu anhu, he says, we would say, because he was a young man, and we'll see, he actually, he has a role here. Al-Bara ibn Azib, he says, we would say, that the Sahaba at Badr were 300 or so. The same number as the companions of Talut who crossed the river and none crossed the river with him except Mu'minun, believers. So he's referring to the story of Talut uh, in Surah Al-Baqarah. And it's a, it's a story about how he selected and tested 
people who were to be his soldiers, right? And the test was to only take one draught, one, one sip, basically, of water from the river. Uh, anyone who takes more than that would not be allowed to go. And the ulama, they derive, they derive from this that uh, it is the right of the Amir, the one responsible for these affairs, to test his soldiers with endurance, even things that don't always make sense, just to see who is going to obey, even if they don't know why they're obeying, right? Obviously, things that are permissible, but why not take two sips, you know? Just testing them to see if they listen. Are they going to rationalize why they should take more than two or more than one? Or are they just going to listen because following commands? Right, so that was a test. So he says there was 300 or so, the same number of soldiers as those who went with Talut. Now there were some, we said, who wanted to go, who intended to go, but they stayed back due to excuses, legitimate excuses. And the Prophet ﷺ considered them among those who fought and they received their share of the reward of the ghanima. Who are these individuals? Why did they stay back? Well, first of them we have Sayyiduna Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. Why doesn't he go? Because he was caring for the beloved daughter of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Sayyida Ruqayya. She was very sick at the time, and so Uthman stayed behind and cared for her for her until she passed away. Another person who wasn't able to go was Talha ibn Ubaidillah and Sa'id bin Zayd. Why weren't they able to go? They came days after, so it was too late to join. Of course, they would have joined if they could. Another person who couldn't go was Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, who's leading the Salat. Why couldn't he go? He's blind. Now, that's not the end of the story for Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, because if you go to the tafsir in Surah Tawbah, where Allah Ta'ala says to the believers, Infiru khifafan wa thiqalan wa jahidu fi sabirillah, right? The verse that says, Go forth whether you're light or heavy. Uh, Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum, in one narration, he got on a horse and he wanted to go out. And they said, you're, you, you are from Ashabul A'adhar, you're excused. And he says, I know, but I want to add my, just to increase the numbers of the Muslims, just for that psychological effect. Right, so it's not that he was excused and he didn't want to go, he wanted to go, and he even tried to go on different expeditions. So the next person who didn't go for an excuse was Asim ibn Adi al-Ajlani. He's not so well known, but the reason why he stayed behind is because he was in charge of the Muslims in Quba, in that area right outside of Medina. We have Harith ibn Usimma, Khawat ibn Jubair, and these two stayed behind for a very... I think for them, a very disappointing reason. The Prophet ﷺ wanted to make sure that people had their gear prepared and they had their camels ready. These two wanted to go out. The problem was their camels were able-bodied, strong camels. The problem is the camels were outside or the outskirts of Medina. They would have to go outside and fetch the camels and bring them back and prepare them and there was not enough time so they were basically left there you know keep your gear ready right 
They, they, they wish they would have had the camels nearer to them, so they couldn't go. You have Abu Umama ibn Thalaba of the Ansar. He was ready to go, he was prepared. However, his mother was ill and his uncle told him to stay. And then the Prophet ﷺ told him to stay as well. So he had to obey his, the Prophet ﷺ and his uncle to look after his mother. Likewise, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah wasn't able to go because he got bit by a snake and was injured. So he wasn't able to go. And lastly, Hudayfa ibn Yaman anhu and his father were unable to go. Now, their reason is quite profound. It's quite admirable when you hear their reason. So Hudayfa tells the story about why he and his father couldn't go and says that they were actually on a trip going back to Medina and as they're making their way back, uh, some of Quraysh, knowing that the Muslims, basically apprehended them, basically seized them and surrounded them. And they said, are you going to Muhammad? And Hudayfa bin Yaman says, we do not seek him, we're only headed to Medina. So this is, this is indicating that among Quraysh, they know that the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims are tracing these routes to intercept a caravan. So they see these Muslims, Hudayfa and his father, and they're assuming that Hudayfa and the father are looking to go join the Prophet ﷺ to add to the numbers of Muslims who are raiding caravans. So they say, are you going to Muhammad? And they said, no, we're going to Medina. We're only seeking Medina. And then they said uh, that they take an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They swear to God that they're just going to Medina and they're not going to join in any fight. Right? They don't know what's going on. They're just they're telling the truth. So they get to Medina and now the Muslims are going out for Badr, right? What happens here? He has a choice to make. Does he honor the oath he made to Quraysh? Or does he go with the Prophet ﷺ? He goes to the Prophet ﷺ and he says, Ya Rasulullah, please depart, make your way, and I'm going to honor the covenant and I will ask Allah to help you against them. Because he made a promise. Right? He made a promise, even to his enemies, that he's not going to go out. So he didn't go out, he or his father. And he receives the reward because Allah knows that he would have gone out were it not for that oath. So the Prophet ﷺ had announced this to the Muslims, and they gathered their supplies, they gathered their camels, and they gathered a total of 70 camels for this trip and the narrations mentioned them taking turns riding the camels if you have 313 people that means there's going to be three or four people per camel taking turns so it's 160 miles from Medina to Badr so this is quite it's not a super long journey but it's not an easy journey either and so they're taking turns riding for a certain duration then one gets off and they switch and so on and this even includes the Prophet ﷺ. Like each individual camel was assigned to two or three different people, and they're taking turns. The camel of the Prophet ﷺ was shared with Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anhu and Marthad ibn Abi Marthad. 
uh, one narration says Abu Lubaba as well. So one narration mentions that when it was the turn of the Prophet ﷺ to walk, they said, Ya Rasulullah, please just continue to ride and we'll walk. Put yourself in their shoes. Rasulullah ﷺ, your leader, the most honored person, is on the camel on this long journey in Ramadan and he wants to get off and walk and have you ride on the camel? Any believer would refuse that just out of etiquette and honor for him. They would say, no, you ride. I will walk the whole way and I will hold the camel reins because you are Rasulullah wasallam. But the Prophet wasallam insists on walking as well. And he says to them, you are not stronger than me and I am not in any less need of reward from Allah than you. He's stronger than them. If he wanted, he could walk the whole way without a camel. They're getting tired and fatigued. He could keep going. But he tells them, I am not in less need of reward than you because there's a reward with the mashaqqa, the difficulty of walking more than riding the camel. Also, think about this too from a psychological perspective. You're out there sharing a camel with three or four people. Maybe you get tired and you're getting a little fed up with this. But you see Rasulullah walking. How are you going to complain about being tired? How are you going to say, oh, my legs are tired, they're fatigued? He's walking. You're going to keep going. So he's also, in a not so subtle way, motivating the rest of the Muslims to keep at it going forward, even though they're fatigued and tired. So we have a story in connection with this too. And these are some of the miracles that unfolded on the way there. And we've, we, we haven't even gotten a mile really outside of Medina, like a few miles maybe. There's a story about these two companions. One is named Rifa'a and the other is Khalad. And they are the sons of Rafi'a. These two brothers were sharing a camel. But this camel was a very weak and skinny, probably a little malnourished camel. You know, in the world of cars, they were driving, you know, a 1995 Toyota Corolla with an old replaced transmission. And, you know, it's, it's seen better days. So they're on this skinny camel and they're riding with the group. But the camel gets to a place called Roja and they get off and the camel just collapses. It's like, I'm done. I'm finished. Camel, the skinny, tired camel collapses in Roja. They go and tell the Prophet ﷺ what happened to the camel. And what does he do? He, he's on his camel. He gets down off the camel. He goes and makes wudu. He takes that wadu. The wudu is the process. The wadu is the water that's left over after the wudu. He makes the wudu. And then he takes the wadu. And then he uses that. And has them open the camel's mouth. And he pours some of that into the mouth and takes the rest of it and wipes the camel with it. He gets up and goes back, continuing the journey. They're doing what they can for the camel to help it regain its strength. The group moves on. Rifa'a and Khalad are behind. So now they're a little bit behind the caravan of Muslims or the camels. Finally, this camel gets back up and they start taking turns. Turns out this camel has a new bill of health 
and was feeling really energetic now and healthy and strong to the point that they eventually catch up and as they keep going it ends up being at the head of the pack and that's from the barakah of that Allah Ta'ala placed within the wadu of the Prophet Sallallahu and when the camel caught up with the pack and was at the head Rasulullah saw this camel and he laughed there's narrations like this where you know certain miracles would unfold and he would laugh because this is an expression of joy at seeing how Allah Ta'ala uh, created these blessed moments where uh, the normal patterns of existence, the, the adat were basically broken. adat, right? The norms were disrupted and miraculous things occurred. So let's uh, talk a little bit about the troops and the equipment and their preparations and put all of that in context. When the intelligence on Abu Sufyan's caravan was known, the Prophet ﷺ, it appears he kept this information discreet. Uh, it's not entirely clear how Talha and Sa'id come with news and the Prophet ﷺ leaves before without hearing from them. But he goes and it's very discreet in how he organizes the Sahaba and he tells them whoever has a camel should get the camel and go forth. So some of those companions had camels by the ready. Others said, I have, we have camels but they're out. And he said, no, only those whose animals are ready now can go. So it does appear that the Prophet ﷺ only told them about the destination and the details after they were departing. And it appears that there was no pressing need to make major preparations. We don't have any accounts of the Muslims amassing lots of armor. In fact, one narration says only two horses went on this trip. Like if it was expected to be a protracted major battle, they would have brought more horses. They would have brought more armor. They would have brought spears and swords, lances, you name it. They would have brought all sorts of stuff. But we see that they didn't bring a lot of stuff. And that, it begs the question, if they're going out with just minimal weaponry and camels and only two horses, why would they do that? It's because their expectation of what is going to happen at Badr is completely different from what's actually going to happen in a few days. And Allah Ta'ala describes that in Surah Al-Anfal that we'll discuss next week. So it seems like they thought it was going to be a very easy mission because the intelligence reports that made their way back stated that the caravan of Abu Sufyan that had a thousand camels and 50,000 dirhams and all this other stuff was only manned by 40 men. So if you're 313 and you have camels and you have your swords, and you're going to face 40, you're going out pretty confident that you don't even have to fight because you just outnumbered them. What are they going to do? How are they going to put up a fight if you're 313 deep and they're 40? It, there's no chance. So they thought, okay, this will be easy. 
we'll just we don't even have to fight. We'll just go and we'll just take it because they can't really put up a resistance to this. But we're going to see how the Muslims are headed to Badr with that expectation, and everything gets reversed, even in the dreams. Right, things are presented in the opposite, and then they get reversed. We'll see that in the next week. So they're going out with relatively minimal weaponry. They're not expecting a long, protracted, hard battle. They think it's easy. The Prophet ﷺ goes out with them, and when they get about a mile outside of Medina, outside at this uh, well, the Prophet ﷺ had all of the Sahaba line up in rows. And the purpose of this was to examine the equipment and the readiness of the men and also to pick out any people who were too young to go, that he determined were too young to go. And they would be sent back. That's why it's a mile outside of Medina. It's not too far. They can walk back. So the hadith mentioned different things. Uh, one states that as they were lined in rows, the Prophet ﷺ examined each of them, picked out some of the young men from them, and sent them back. Those who were turned back and sent to Medina, Usama bin Zaid, anhu. And you know, he was already young when he went to battle. His first time going to battle was 16, so he's, he's younger than that. Usama bin Zaid sent back. Abdullah ibn Umar sent back. Al-Bara ibn Azib, who's describing the numbers as 13, He's, he's, read that hadith again. He says that the, you know, the Muslims who were at Badr, he didn't say we, because he was sent back because he was too young. Al-Bara ibn Azib has to go back. Uh, Rafi' ibn Khadij, Usaid ibn Zuhair, Zayd ibn Arqam, and Zayd ibn Thabit, these are all young men, sent back. There was one young man, however, who managed to go. And it's the brother of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu. We all know Sa'ad. Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu has a brother by the name of, what's his name? I'm looking at you. Why would, my, why would I look at you? Hmm? No. Umair. <laughs> That's why I'm looking at you. So Umair ibn Abi Waqqas the younger brother of Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas. Umair knew that there is a very high chance of him being sent back. And his brother Sa'ad tells the story that his young brother Umair was actually hiding. So all the, you know, the camels and the food and all the supplies, he's like just out there, his little skinny self just hiding so that he's not seen and picked out and sent back to Medina. But he's seen. And the Prophet wasallam sees him tells him to go back to Medina. Umair breaks down in tears. This young man, he's crying, weeping, and the Prophet ﷺ relented and allowed him to stay. So his brother, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, says, I would, I would tie his sword for him so that he could carry it because of his small size. He was so skinny that the belt and the sheath and everything to carry the sword was 
too wide. He had to cinch it and tie it and tighten it so that it would stay put on his body as he's walking and going with them on the way to Badr. So Umair was pleading to the Prophet to be given the chance to go out with these men in hopes that he will be able to uh, strive fi sabirillah and attain shahada fi sabirillah. So what happens? Later, we get to the story of Badr. When the battle ensues, we learn that Umair ibn Abi Waqqas is struck down in battle and he is killed by Amr ibn Abdul So he is among the shuhada of Badr, radiallahu anhu, this young man. And I don't know exactly how old he was, but he was probably around 14 or under 14 even. So what does that say about our teenagers and our young adults? What does that say about our adults? You know, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would say, لَا تَتَمَنَّوا لِقَاءِ الْعَدُوُ Don't hope to meet the enemy in battle. But if you meet them in battle, then be patient. Now, it's not about uh, craving after conflict, but it's about a willingness to sacrifice, a willingness to do hard things, and taking on difficult tasks for greater objectives that are pleasing to Allah Ta'ala. So that willingness and readiness has to be there. There also needs to be a hardiness. Uh, But unfortunately, we're in a time and a place where, uh, as one brother says, Uh, Our young people are softer than baby thighs. (laughs) So, you know, overly coddled, overly spoiled. They're not given challenges. And, you know, in the family dynamic, uh, whose responsibility is it for them to be in? Who's going to instill those things in them? The father. It's not the mother. But across Masajid in North America, Who's bringing the young men to the programs the most? It's the mothers. And no blame on the mothers. They, they, they're doing their best. They, they, ha- they want good for their kids. But the fathers have to take a role, not just in uh, handing over the money, but actually developing their, their sons. Like it's a very particular relationship that has to be between the fathers and sons to develop them, not just in uh, teaching deen and Quran and character, but also just that hardiness. But the one who doesn't have it can't give it. So it's a generational thing where the adults have to make a decision to embody those things in themselves and develop themselves so they can pass that on. Uh, but I'll stop my rant now. So the path to Badr. On the way to Badr, after uh, aligning them in rows, there's one more story I forgot to say, and it's a, a lovely story. I can't remember his name, but uh, it mentions in the hadith that when they were lined in rows, there was someone in the row who was kind of jutting out, like he wasn't straight in the row, lined up to those on his left and right. And as the Prophet ﷺ was passing by, he saw him coming out of the row. He had an arrow shaft, you know, the arrow shaft, not the tip, but the, the, the other side. And he lightly, he pokes him in the stomach to basically signal to get into the row properly. And then this individual, he says, Ya Rasulullah, uja'atani. Huh? Sawad. Sawad bin Qarib, radiallahu anhu. 
He has some beautiful poetry also in praise of the Prophet Sallallahu So Sawab bin Qarib, right, that's him. He says, Ya Rasulullah, you've, you've caused me pain, you hurt me. I demand qisas. I demand retribution. So, you know, if, if I poke you with an arrow, shaft, not the tip, obviously. Oh, Sawab bin Ghaziyyah. Okay, not that other one. So if I poke you, or if I punch you in the shoulder, and you're hurting, you can say, ah, I get to punch you back. He says this, and Muslims are looking around like, what? How dare you? How, how could you even think that? But the Prophet them, he knew what he meant. And he says, okay, here's my stomach. And he, he lifts his, his qamis, and he goes, what do you think he does? He goes and he kisses Kisses his stomach, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and this is how they were, you know. So they're going out now. They've they've gone past Medina, and they're going through different key points on the route. The books of Sirah go into a lot of detail about where they stopped and stayed along that route. They go through Aqiq, they go through Dhu Hulayfa, which is the miqat for the people of Medina. They go through that Jaish and other key points on the route. The books of Sirah detail these routes. We're not going to talk about all of those places because they're basically stops along the way. But they're covering 160 miles southwest of Medina. So Badr is a place, it's a valley, it's also a well. So Badr is actually named after a person named Badr ibn Yakhlud, who existed hundreds of years prior to all of this. He is said to have discovered the well in that area or discovered the valley and dug the well, found the water source in that area. And the well of Badr is ascribed to him, Badr bin Yakhlud. And then the valley around it came to be known as the Valley of Badr as well. So, and I say valley, think of like a plains area with some slopes. And then you have a well situated here. So that whole area is called Badr, even though it's named after the well dug by this man. In that time, it would take them about three days of steady journeying to get there, on foot and on camel. So if you think about it, you know, in the military, some of the militaries do these culmination exercises where they cover 100 miles in three days. So they'll have gear and they'll basically have to walk 333 miles a day they set up camp, they go to sleep, and they do it the next day, and then the next day after that. They cover 100 miles. If this is 160 miles, and you're on camel and on foot, and the camels are carrying your gear, you can travel faster. So it takes about three days in their time. Now, there's something really interesting here that some scholars point out. They draw our attention to a couple of developments. Three weeks before Badr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals in the Qur'an the change of the Qibla from Quds to Mecca. So that Qibla is changed from Quds to Mecca. Three weeks later, they're also heading south in for what's going to be the Battle of Badr. And then you know that later on comes the opening of Mecca. So there's these subtle indications that these shifts are happening, bringing them back to ultimate victory and conquest. So they go out 
And like the previous ghazawat, there's always going to be the flag bearer. We've mentioned before the one who is holding the liwa. Who is holding the liwa? There's actually three this time. The main liwa was given to Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu anhu. This was a, a white liwa, battle flag. There were two other flags given. Both were black flags. One given for the Ansar and one given for the Muhajirun. So the representative from the Ansar is carrying a black flag and one from the Muhajirun carrying a black flag. So the former was with uh, Ali and the latter was with Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. Muhajir flag, Sayyidina Ali. Ansari flag with Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. It was at this stage along the journey as they're nearing to Badr, the Prophet Sallallahu is getting himself ready even before the lines are drawn. The hadith mentioned that before he even gets there on the way, he puts on his armor. And as we mentioned in the Shema'il class some years back, the Prophet Sallallahu would name his armor and name his weaponry. So the armor he put on was named Dhatul Fudul, and the sword that he had was known as Al Adb. And he departed from this place called Buyut Suqya and headed towards Badr. Armor on and with his sword. And there going forward, he made a dua saying, Oh Allah, they are barefoot, hufat, so carry them. They are urat, they are naked, so clothe them. And they are hungry, so satiate them. Because the Muslims are poor, Muslims are struggling. And they need to have this caravan raided so they can bring financial resources to the Muslim community. So the Muslims are steadily making their way southwest to Badr. Acting on the intelligence of Abu Sufyan going through this route. Now the Muslims are making their way. What's going on with him? He is north. They're heading south. He's north, so they're hoping to intercept as he makes his way south. Now as they are heading towards Badr, and Abu Sufyan is making his way south, he was getting nearer and nearer, and he knew of the threats in general, because there were a lot of close calls. And he found out during the Ghazwa of Ushayra that he was just a day or so from getting those car- that caravan raided. So he, he knew something was up. He knew something was in the air. But this is before telephones and radios and email. So you're operating with the use of scouts. So what did he do? He sent scouts. He sent some scouts to go gather intel and look for any riders off in different regions to ask them if they encountered the Muslims. So these Scouts are going out looking for people. Did you see any Muslims? Did you see Muhammad and his companions? Did you see them? Where were they going? Where are they headed? What route did they take? They're going out gathering intel. And Ibn Ishaq mentions that during this process, Abu Sufyan encountered some Bedouins, some A'rab, you know, these nomadic Arabs. And they told him that they saw two men spying on his caravan. So you can think of Talha and Sa'id somewhere off in the distance, spying on the caravan, tracking where it's going. 
But then somewhere else, these Bedouins who know the land, you see, these two guys out there, what are, they're, they're, they're spying on them. So those Bedouins encounter Abu Sufyan and say, yeah, these two guys were checking you out. They were tracking your caravan. So they tell him, and the Bedouins know where Talha and Sa'id were. So Abu Sufyan asked to be shown the area where they were scouting them. So he goes, and the Bedouin takes him to the campsite they left behind. He's walking around the campsite, and he sees camel droppings, relatively fresh. What does Abu Sufyan do? He takes a stick, and he basically pokes through the camel dung, opens it up. What does he see inside? He sees date seeds from Medina. He says, these are the date seeds of Yathrib. What does that mean? It means he knows that these camel tracks, these camel droppings, contain date seeds from Medina, meaning these were scouts from Medina, the Muslims. They have been tracking me. So now he knows that the chase is on, but he doesn't know where anyone is. He's not sure what to do or where to go. So far, he's been quite clever, and he's escaped quite narrowly previous attempts to raid the caravan. But it's at this stage that he actually makes two very, very fatal mistakes. And we're going to analyze those mistakes next week. The two mistakes that they don't appear like mistakes in the moment, but they're mistakes because his two decisions actually set in motion what went from a caravan that could have been raided with just money to a great battle that became even more decisive. Like if he just kept going without seeing that Bedouin, right? You could speculate, right? It would have gotten raided. It wouldn't have been a fight because they were outnumbered. So they would have lost the money, but that was it. So in trying to stop that from happening, he actually does things that sets into motion a much greater defeat than there would have been otherwise. So he's using his intelligence. He doesn't realize that there are second and third order effects that are going to make this much, much worse for him and all of Quraysh. And it becomes a very decisive victory. What are these two mistakes? Mistake number one. From his location, he takes a local guide and has the local guide take him, guide him away from the shore to an unused route to bypass the main routes. Mistake number one, and we'll explain why next week. Mistake number two, he hires a man named Dandam ibn Amr al-Ghifari to go to Mecca and to tell Quraysh what is going on, to rouse them, to gather their weapons and armor, to go out and intercept the Muslims before the caravan gets raided so they can stop this from happening. Dumdum goes out there to rouse Quraysh and we'll analyze that next week. The Muslims, meanwhile, are going to Badr thinking they are 313 to face off with 40 and they're only going to realize later that it's not 40 at all, but it becomes a decisive battle in which Allah gives them victory. So next week, we're going to look at how Quraysh reacts when Dhamdam arrives. We'll look at some of the signs and dreams that they were even seeing, uh, alerting to them to this possibility of great defeat. And then we'll look at how they end up heading out 
to intercept and then what leads up to the battle and the battle itself insha'Allah ta'ala wallahu rasuluhu a'lamu sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam